0: Well, so good to be here. Amen. Amen. Been so encouraged by so many different things this morning. And this morning we launch a brand new series called Runaway Grace. It is a three-part series of sermons that um, all come from this letter, this simple letter that Paul wrote to a person, to Philemon is his name, Uh, as as you read the letter, I would prefer to do so. It is the shortest book in the Bible, 25 verses, one chapter uh, in the Bible, Philemon is. And you will come across a man by the name of Onesimus. So we have Paul, we have Philemon, and we have Onesimus. The purpose of the letter is that Paul is writing to Philemon and he is writing to Philemon because Onesimus is a runaway slave who belongs to Philemon. And Paul is encouraging asking Philemon if he will return, uh, uh, if he will allow Onesimus to come back. And as he allows him to come back, to not treat him as the Roman law allowed at that time for a runaway slave. Let me speak to him for a moment to slavery in Roman times. Some estimate that 40% of the Roman population were slaves, and that very well could have been the case. While slavery is always uh, evil, it wasn't as we think of slavery as we study it in the States. It, these slaves were most often house servants. They often at, or at times became uh, sons or daughters of the family. And so uh, we, uh, sometimes the phrase in Scripture is translated as bond-servant instead of slave, and that's the reason. Uh, with that being said, Paul writes to Onesim- to Philemon, uh, making this argument, calling Onesimus a faithful brother. This is a runaway slave, believed to have stolen from his master, runaway. He was a heathen, he was a sinner, he was a pagan, he was in prison, and Paul calls him faithful brother. Uh, amazing to see what Paul says to him. And from this, we learn one simple principle from uh, the first seven verses of Philemon. We learn one simple principle. I hope it sticks with you today. When you love Jesus, you will love others. And when you love others, you will know Jesus. When you love Jesus, you will love others. You cannot love Jesus without loving others. And when you love others... You will know Jesus better than you've ever known him. And so we're going to dig into that for a moment. Paul says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. I want to ask you a question this morning. Think with me. Who, as you pray, can you say that to about? Who, when you pray, you thank God always for them? Always when you pray, when they come to your mind, you thank God always for them. I would say to you, that person is a God send in your life, a God send. I don't use that term lightly. I use that term with its full oomph. God sent whoever that is. Whoever it is that you can pray and you always thank God for them, God for some reason placed them in your life, in a critical place, in a critical space to advance his cause and his purpose in you. Uh, Why does Paul pray with such fervor over one man named Philemon? Of all the people Paul has met, why Philemon? Here he says, because I hear. Uh, Philemon's reputation preceded him, and our reputations always precede us, don't they? Good or bad. All right, good or bad, uh, you, we all have a rep, and, and uh, good or bad, that reputation goes ahead of us. Uh, we should take that uh, in one sense as a warning, all right, so as a warning, but not make too much of it so as to live our lives always to please others. But uh, what does Paul hear exactly? Your love and the faith Toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. These two prepositions matter a lot. Your faith and love for Jesus and toward saints. That is in the right order. All right? Uh, What this means is that in order to love others well, you must love Jesus first. Please hear me. In order to love others well, you must love Jesus first. Your love and faith for the Lord Jesus and toward. They are in the right order. They are in the right order. And that's what Paul sees in Philemon. All right, so if you love others without loving Jesus, that's sentimentalism. It's sentimentalism often leads to what counselors call codependency, what scripture calls idolatry. You love others, and without loving Jesus, then they can begin to take on some Jesus attributes to you. Right? They, they have to live up to a pretty high and heady calling, which no human being can handle. Nobody can live under that. And so Philemon loved Jesus first, and then he loved others second. What is the basis of Philemon's love for Jesus? Here's what is interesting here, and it's the thrust of today. It's the remarkable uh, thing that is unfolding in this passage. We have three characters in these 25 verses who converge together. And only the gospel, only the gospel can bring three disparate characters like this together. Who are they? Well, there's Paul, who was a Jew, who who was killing Christians until God showed up to him. On the Damascus Road, Jesus himself and said, Saul, his name was at the time, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he was struck blind by the brightness of the glory and the radiance of Christ. And Saul was converted, name changed to Paul. And then there's Onesimus. So Saul is this intellectual. He's one of the brightest men ever to walk on the planet, educated uh, among the best. He was a Jew by all standards of being Jewish and a Roman citizen too. And then you've got Onesimus. Uh, Onesimus is a slave in a prison cell. And Paul is there for sharing the gospel, for preaching. He's imprisoned, and Paul never allowed his circumstances to dictate his uh, demeanor, did he? And so he's in prison. He begins to share with this runaway slave about Jesus Christ. And when he does, runaway slave thief, thief becomes faithful brother. So we've got Saul, who is this uh, persecutor of Christians, met by Jesus on the road to Damascus, converted. He, by the gospel, would say, Romans one sixteen I am not ashamed of the what? Gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He meets Onesimus in prison who 's run away uh, slave, and then there's Philemon Philemon is a wealthy Asian. He's a wealthy Asian from Colossae, most likely, and so he's there uh, in this picture. All three, we've got wealthy Asian, we've got runaway slave, we've got Jew-turned-Christian. They converge in 25 verses. What in the world would bring three disparate characters like this together? None other than the gospel none other than the gospel let me quote Keller the gospel is this we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe yet at the very same time we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope and some of you don't yet believe that you you don't You say, Jay, how do you know? Like, how can you tell? We'll see that in a moment. We'll examine ourselves in a moment. The gospel is what levels the ground. It's it's why a runaway slave, a well-educated Jew, and a, a wealthy Asian can find themselves on common ground. Why? Their sin is equally detestable before God. They're equally hopeless apart from him. So what does Paul pray? It's a prayer that God is going to answer for some of you this morning. Look at this. He says, and I pray, verse 6, that the sharing of your faith may become effective for what? The full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Huh. Now, Philemon hosts a church in his home. Most likely, Aphia, who's mentioned here, is his wife. Some say Archippus, who's mentioned here, is his son, who's probably, if he is or if he isn't, he's a preacher. He's called a fellow soldier and laborer. And Philemon doesn't yet know the fullness of Christ in him? Yeah. That's Paul's prayer for him. That you would know the fullness. He says, look at this one more time. He says, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective. For the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Is it possible to worship every Sunday, lead a life group, uh, be a deacon, uh, sing on stage, and not have a full knowledge of what's in you for the sake of Christ? Yes. If Philemon can host a church in his home... then it's possible to know Christ, but to not do so effectively, meaning this fullness. Well, what is it? I uh, came across this this week in, in London. It was good Friday or in England. It was good Friday. A family was celebrating, not in a godly way, drinking it up, They lived in their Victorian home that uh, was more than 200 years old for about three years. And there was a grate in the floor about three feet long. They had noticed they had never done anything with it. And in honestly, their drunkenness, one of them decided to go lift the grate up and see what was there. And so he picks the grate up and there's a 23-year-old and a 25-year-old who are just uh, small enough to fit down in the grate. And when they do, they go down and discover this is the house. There's the grate. See it right there? That's what they discover in their basement. They didn't know they had a basement. All right, so they're in their drunken stupor. They decide to go down into this grate and they drop down in there to discover what apparently, as you can see, by the cross and by the, the, the blocked seats was a chapel of sorts obviously it freaked them out a tad. They had no idea that they were over a bunker used for something. It could have been all the way back in the 1700s when uh, England forbade uh, Catholicism. And so you would find these places underneath houses that were called priest holes. And it's where they dropped the priest down in to to hide him. I've got one at my house and uh, (laughs) it's just a trap door. And when when people come, I just hit a button and boom, I'm gone. I'm kidding. Um. But there they are. They discover it. And so they see some cardboard over and what appears to be an opening. They go to the opening, discover steps. They, they wonder where these steps are going to lead. They're leading up. They go up the steps only to find themselves in the back of the cupboard of the dining uh, in in the kitchen. There's a cupboard. They're in the back of the cupboard. They push through the back of the cupboard. Sure enough, there's a door there that leads down to this chapel that for three three years they've been living in this home and seeing that doorway open and down to uh, having no clue what it was and there they were atop a historic perhaps chapel of some sorts Uh, the reality is that some of you know christ but have no idea what is in you 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 don't know Oh, if you could ever, and perhaps today is the beginning of that, because I can promise you when you come to know more fully Christ in you, who is the hope of glory, it won't be like this. We're not talking about an immediate uh, light bulb and all of a sudden everything in your life changes, but it's more like digging deep into the history of this, uh, this, this chapel underneath and, and discovering Someone who loves you more than you could ever, ever hope because you are more sinful than you've ever imagined. You say, What does it look like? Yesterday, I received a phone call, sat down with a man who lives in another state. He said, Jerry, I'm just in town, I need to talk. And we sat down, began to talk. His wife has left him four children, multiple affairs. He's devastated, angry, all of the above, right? So we sit down to process this, talk about it, talk through it. Toward the end of our time, I said, could I talk to you for a moment about the gospel? This guy's been in church for years. Yes, sir. I said, do you know the gospel says that you are so sinful that Jesus had to die for you and so loved he was glad to die for you? What do you mean? What I mean is this, as awful as it is what your wife has done, apart from the grace of God, you are just as sinful and if there's any hope for her, it's in the gospel. And if there's any hope for you, it's in the gospel. All of a sudden, everything began to change. As we got further, at one point, humorously, he said, okay, I'm done. <laughs> and then he said, I didn't come here for you to call me out. And then he was so grateful. He said, Jerry, what do you mean? You can't read Philemon without getting this. If you do, you miss Philemon. How is it that anybody would argue for a runaway thief? All right, so I know you guys are struggling to connect with this because thankfully we don't have slaves. So let me bring it home. Many of you are employers. So so your financial administrator embezzles $300,000, ends up in prison. Sitting beside Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson has just come to faith in Christ as he sits in prison. He shares he shares Christ with your C O O who embezzled the money from you. And you receive a letter one day on your desk, brilliant mind. You know who Colson is. Radical conversion of his mess in Watergate. And Colson writes a letter and he says, I've met Jim. And Jim Jim The embezzler is now a faithful brother. And I know your faith. So let's bring it home. Truett Kathy, right? Founder of Chick-fil-A. Truett, I know your faith. Would you hire him back? Would you hire him back? Through it, are we getting it now this is grace this is grace so I want to share some things with you I, you know when I get to heaven I'm going to sit down with Tim Keller for like the first 10,000 years. <laughs> all right. I'm going to just just sit down with him. So I'm getting ready to quote him again. But don't worry. Don't write. As you leave, it's all right here. You'll get this. Okay. Listen, we're going to walk through. This is the difference between religion and the gospel. We are not a religious church. Never claimed to be, never planned to be. We're Christians. Here's the difference between religion and the gospel. You'll see it up on the screen. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. These are all Keller quotes. The gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. I'm going to say to you, you can camp out on these quotes for the next uh, years of your life and be refreshed. The religion says, motivation is based on fear and insecurity. The gospel says, motivation is based on grateful joy. Religion says I obey God in order to get things from God. The gospel says I'll obey God to get to God, to get delight, to delight and resemble Him. Religion says when circumstances in my life go wrong, I am angry at God or myself, since I believe like Job's friends, that anyone who is good deserves a comfortable life. The gospel says when circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle, but I know all my punishment fell on Jesus and that while he may allow this for my training, he will exercise his fatherly love within my trial. That's the gospel. Religion says, when I am criticized, I am furious or devastated because it is critical that I think of myself as a good person. Listen, so many of you are here. You're here. Threats to that self-image must be destroyed at all costs. The gospel says... When I am criticized, I struggle, but it is not critical for me to think of myself as a good person. My identity is not built on my record or my performance, but on God's love for me in Christ. I can take criticism. And the church says, amen. Religion says, my prayer life, all right, this is still toe boots time. Consists largely of petition and it only heats up when I am in a time of need. My main purpose in prayer is the control of my environment. The gospel says my prayer life consists of generous stretches of praise and adoration. My main purpose is fellowship with him. Religion says myself use swings between two poles. If and when I'm living up to my standards, I feel confident. But then I'm prone to be proud and unsympathetic to failing people. If and when I'm not living up to standards, I feel insecure and inadequate. I'm not confident. I feel like a failure in a show of grace. Has anybody ever lived there? Raise your hand. Yes. The gospel says my self-view is not based on a view of myself as a moral achiever. In Christ, I am simultaneously sinful and yet accepted in Christ. I am so bad he had to die for me. I am so loved he was glad to die for me. This leads me to deeper and deeper humility and confidence. At the same time, neither swaggering nor sniveling. Religion says my identity and self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work or how moral I am. And so I must look down on those I perceive as lazy or immoral. I disdain and feel superior to the other. The gospel says my identity and self-worth are centered on the one who died for his enemies. Who was excluded from the city for me. I am saved by sheer grace Sheer grace. Please hear that. It is only the grace of God that any of us in this room can claim anything for Christ. Amen, church? It is only his grace. So I can't look down on those. Hear me. Hear me who believe or practice something different from me. Only by grace I am what I am. I have no inner need to win arguments. Wow. This is the gospel. Since I look to my own pedigree, religion says, or performance for my spiritual acceptability, my heart manufactures idols. Recently, I told Wendy I'd finished a time in prayer and I said, oh my goodness. And she said, what is it? And I said, in my time with the Lord today, he revealed two idols two idols. I so thought I was over this. I so thought I was over this in my life that never again would those idols creep up to the throne of my heart and find their place there. And I would find myself bowing down before some ridiculous idea of, of success. Why? Why would I bow before anything other than the crucified and risen Jesus Christ? It may be my talents, my moral record, my personal discipline, my social status. I absolutely have to have them so that they serve as my main hope, meaning, happiness, security, and significance. Whatever I may say, I believe about God. Here's the gospel. I have many good things in my life, family, work, spiritual disciplines. (sighs) But none of these good things are ultimate things to me. None of them are things I absolutely have to have. So there is a limit to how much anxiety, bitterness, and despondency they can inflict on me when they are threatened and lost. Notice the order of things. Love Jesus. Love others. And you'll know Jesus. So how does this happen? Well, Paul says that the sharing of your faith, almost every time we read that, we think evangelizing. No. No, it isn't. It isn't that here. Context says otherwise. So what is it? What did Philemon have in his home? A church. You know what it means? When you decide to live in gospel community with other believers and this is not socializing, this is not going out to eat. This is sitting down and looking across the living room, the space here at grace, wherever your life group may meet and saying, we're, we're all so sinful." Jesus had to die for us. And we're all so loved. He was glad to die for us. Whatever pretension you had about yourself walking in that room has to leave by the time you leave that room. That's what he's talking about. That's it. That's sharing your faith with others. Gospel-centered community. This evening, your life group leaders are coming here to spend an hour and a half talking about this thing. The art of caring and correction. How? How? To help you grow. And how to correct you when you stumble. Why? Do you know what the church is great at? (gasps) They're down. Boom. Let's kick them. We're good at that, aren't we? We're so good at that. If you're here and you're not in a life group on your connection card, it says group link. You need to sign up. You need to sign up. Uh, This is not a sermon to promote a program. Life groups aren't a program. Life groups are just that. A space to do life together with other people around the gospel. Around the gospel. Level, playing, field. Only around the gospel can a wealthy Asian, a runaway slave and an intellectual Jew-turned-Christian sit down and get real with each other. Why? Nothing, the old songwriter says, in my hands I bring simply to thy, what? Cross. I, what? Cling. Like, hold on for dear life to the gospel. Say, Jerry, why? All right. For some of you, today is a light bulb. I know it is. And by default, every time, every time, by default, you go back to works. In your thinking and in your practice. Every single time. So you have to cling. So here's how we're going to close today. Our praise team is going to come up. I heard this earlier this year. And the song that we're going to do, Judith is going to lead us in, is called The Gospel. So we got three or four of us that are going to lead you in this. Paul says, verse 7, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother. Look at this. Can this be said about you? Because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. That's that's what happens in life groups. The hearts of the saints are refreshed. Ah. Oh.